Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. Hold on to your pants, it's time for a special episode. Hey everybody, welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Uh, It's Mike by himself today, by myself I should say. But joining me today are two special guests. We've got Dustin Freund, the designer and publisher of The Ghost Betwixt. And John D'Angelo, the designer, or one of the designers, and uh, the publisher of Rune Lords, the board game. Guys, thank you both for making it tonight. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Michael. It's a thrill to be on with you. Yeah, so uh, John, I think we had you on once before, right? We talked before you first launched the original Rune Lords campaign. Uh, it was actually hours before I hit the uh, launch button for the first time. Oh my ever. gosh, that's yeah. right. I forget. We put you through so much extra stress. <laughs> Yeah, and then Dustin, I've been hoping to get you on for a while. So we're doing an interesting uh, episode today, something that is, I think, close to my heart. And for any of you out there who are uh, designers or publishers or hope to be one day, something that you are probably curious about. So uh, (laughs) both John and Dustin designed games that did not perform as well as they would have hoped on their first try on Kickstarter. And yeah, it's it's, it's a hard... (laughs) A painful topic to talk about, but both of them have graciously agreed to be here tonight to talk about how they uh, kind of bounced back from that, and in Dustin's case, had a successful relaunch of the Ghost Betwixt, which is actually delivering to backers. Uh, how, how soon are you thinking, Dustin, with COVID and all of that? Yeah, honestly, um, so I'm wrapping it up right now, right at the end of the design and the development phase, and I, I plan on it... I hoped it would be the end of 2020. It's probably going to be with COVID and, and all that, the logistics of that, probably Q1 2021, realistically. Sure. That's still awesome, man. Congratulations. And then, John, uh, when are you hoping to relaunch the Rune Lords for a second try? Is that in October? Uh, you know, that's our target month, for sure. We, uh, we do have a specific date and, um, that, we are, that we are aiming for. And um, if everything goes well, we'll be announcing that exact date um, within the next week or two, tops. Yeah, so, so both of you, again, thank you so much for being here. We're going to talk about the trials and tribulations of a Kickstarter that doesn't go as planned the first time and how you kind of deal with that psychologically, how you uh, you know refocus your efforts. And uh, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. But before we get into that, I do want to thank some of our Patreon supporters. Uh, everyone, thank you for your support on Patreon. It means so much helping to defray the cost of the podcast, the cost of the uh, audio editing software we use, uh, computer upgrades, lighting, games we buy, conventions. Once conventions happen again, we attend. Uh, all that stuff is possible through your support. We're thanking three of you specifically tonight. Uh, Sam Butler, who is a co-op champion. Thank you, Sam. Uh, Lil Rub, also known as Joe, a co-op MVP. Thank you, Joe. And Andrew James Barrett, a co-op MVP. Thank you, Andrew. So Sam, Joe, Andrew, all of our supporters, we really appreciate you and how you help us put on the stuff we put on. And also thanks to everyone who goes to our YouTube channel and comments, people on our Slack, on our Discord, uh, people who rate us or review us on iTunes or anywhere else for our podcast. Uh, Everything helps, and we just love the little co-op community we have going on. So thank you all. All right, so uh, let's jump in a bit uh, before we get to your games and the uh, <laughs> the roller coaster ride of Kickstarter, uh, Dustin, starting with you, uh, can you tell us a bit about you as a gamer and how you kind of uh, got into gaming and then into the bigger pitfall slash uh, excitement of designing a game? 
Sure, sure. Uh, let's see. So I've been uh, gaming all my life. Started with video games. Probably my first foray into dungeon crawlers, which is you know where my my passion is as a game designer. Obviously, with the Ghost Betwixt. Uh, started with the original Final Fantasy on Nintendo. So I'm an '80s kid, and uh, that was that was really the first that just showed me. And, and I would say Zelda add, add the original Zelda on there um, that really showed me what you know video games could really be all about to uh you know creating a world around you that you can explore and create your own characters and and dive into a story and and all that stuff that i just i just absolutely fell in love with that um and then of course the first board game i purchased that was outside of the hobby games was uh, like most other people uh, hero quest so loved hero quest and and that showed me that hey some of these elements you know that i loved in video games can also be found in in board games so uh but i kind of moved on for board games as a kid and and didn't really play much as a teenager but then probably about six or seven years ago I just started started to fall out of love with video games um for whatever reason i just didn't didn't really have the same charm i feel as the ones that i grew up loving so i decided to maybe take a peek back into board games and see what it was all about. Um, and I was at a, I think a Barnes and Noble one day and I saw, I think it was legends of Drizzt, uh, the, uh, the D and D adventure game. So it's like, that looks interesting. So I checked, checked that out. And then my first game I bought, um, you know, as an adult was descent and fell in love with descent and just started really diving into dungeon crawlers. And then, uh, so the Ghost Betwixt began as a story. Um, I'd been working on a story for quite a while. Uh, it's kind of a lighthearted horror story and trying to work on this novel. And I'm a writer by trade, so it was challenging to write, you know, 40 hours a week and then also do it in a novel. And I decided, hey, uh, why not try to adapt this story into a dungeon crawler, which I feel like I know quite a bit about. So that's kind of where uh, it all started. Very cool, man. Yeah, and I didn't know the uh, the novel side of things. Uh, so you you have like the whole story in your head in a more realized way than probably the average game designer, I would guess. I did. I had a lot of the story beats. Um, I knew where the story was going and the environments I wanted to explore. And honestly, one of the challenging parts I was finding was just writing the action, you know, writing the battle scenes. And what was cool, what I realized uh, was just kind of an organic transition over to the board game was now I don't have to write the, the, the combat. You know, the combat happens in front of you and you control the combat. So all I need to write is the, the intro to the, you know, the intro to the mission and the end of the mission and all the combat in between kind of fills itself out. So um, it was a it was a really nice fit and I'm thrilled with just how it's all coming together. That's great, Dustin. Thank you. So, John, how about you? I'm pretty sure I asked you a similar question last time you were on, but so people don't have to go and listen to the uh, last episode unless they want to, because, of course, good stuff about the Ruin Lords board game. Uh, how did you get into gaming and how did you get into designing your own? Um, yes, yeah, so I'll uh, nutshell this one a little bit more. You could basically cut and paste exactly what Dustin just said <laughs> about the early years of gaming and just apply it directly to my life. Um, the only thing I would change is instead of Zelda, I was playing Dragon Quest. Like that would be the only difference on the, um, back then. But uh, Hero Quest was my first 
uh, soiree into fantasy, and then I immediately jumped straight into Dungeons and Dragons full on, um, and that's what I filled my teenage years with. I was basically never home. I was always at my at my buddy's house, and we were drinking a ton of Jolt Cola and just staying up until who knows what time in the morning. Um, and um, it was great because uh, in those days, I, I was I was sort of I didn't realize it at the time, but I was getting exposed to just what expansions actually are and what the growth of an IP actually is because I joined, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons at like 11 or 12 and then, you know, oh, what's Dark Sun? And then it's like, oh, Forgotten Realms is its own thing. I didn't realize. And then you start to just dabble into these different IPs that all share kind of the same cohesive thing. And I think years later when I decided to get into game design, I think a lot of that helped because I kind of knew up front the landscape of my design and how much I needed to commit to right away. Um, and I, I feel like it made me want to find an, an established world. Um, this is also talks a little bit into to Dustin when you were saying you're a writer and the time that it takes to do world building. Um, uh, it, it, I knew because of my childhood in that and kind of knowing where I wanted to go as a designer that it made more sense to hopefully get an IP that was sort of established already and something that I could just concentrate on creating something unique system, like systemically, uh, instead of having to worry about the world building. Um, and that is kind of a lazy thing to say because I know how much work goes into world building. (laughs) So, um, hats off to anyone that's, you know, that's done that for their IP on top of game design. But, um, that is kind of how I fell into the, the, the Rune Lords um, situation. I saw an opportunity arise through my entertainment attorney that represents me in music. Uh, he represented the author in his career. And then the introduction was made, and I had already known that I was going to be doing game design because I had already committed to that uh, personally. And uh, I saw it as a fit, and I just pursued David Farland until you know he agreed to to give me a shot with the IP and, um, and it was going to be a video game. Initially, I'm a certified unity game developer and I was going to apply my, um, all of my unity experience into making a digital board game. And then I realized that the way Kickstarter is and just how the community reacts to physical components. I figured I can always digitize this later. And, um, I just applied myself fully to uh, the tabletop experience that I'm currently well, it is funny that both of you, because this has happened to some of my game designs as well. It's funny that uh, for you, Dustin, it was a book that became a game. And then for John, it was a video game that became a board game. So yeah, just, just the the tangled paths we navigate on the way to de- designing something. All right. So uh, for those who are not familiar, have not seen the original campaign or the second campaign for the Ghost Betwix. Uh, John, we'll start with you this time. Can you just kind of describe uh, the Rune Lords, what type of game it is and uh, what different like modes of play it has? Sure. Uh, the Rune Lords is a CCG meta-driven uh, hex-based skirmish game. So it's dudes on a map, one to four players. Uh, and the, the one is an aspect of adventures where you can you could play against AI and you select a scenario or an adventure that they're called in the game. And then you fight against the AI and, and an effort to defeat the, the boss that's on the map. Uh, you can do that solo or co-op. 
Uh, and then you can play PvP in multiple game modes where you can play just head-to-head, 1v1, you can play 2v2, you can play free-for-all, three-player, four-player. Uh, and then there's uh, different game modes like Blitz, for example, which is the fastest. You just grab the pre-generated faction, I'm air-quoting here, um, and which is the, uh, kind of a, uh, the pre-generated deck that's for each rune lord. You just select it and then just put the cards down and just draw and deploy. And that's the fastest way to get into the game. And then there's region control type games. We have uh, um, Rune Lord Royale, uh, Blood Metal Mayhem. We have some, a couple of different game modes that uh, are really kind of more strategic and spread the guys out on the map as opposed to, um, you know, a lot of the faster skirmish games where you just end up with a lump of guys in, in a certain area just killing each other. Sometimes that's fun too. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, the only other level to this that's that's unique that we're really proud of um the entire game system is called the sovereignty game system and one of the unique game system uh systems within it is the deck builder so if you play a sovereignty stage it's totally optional not mandatory you take all of the the cards from a given rune lord that you've chosen and then you spend 12 rounds and you do a very detailed deck building process where players take turns uh, fighting monsters, uh, drawing into event cards, and then uh, they get a purchase round at the end of each, uh, a purchase phase at the end of each round, where you get to purchase from an open available market, and you buy cards using cards, so it's a deck builder uh, kind of adventure mode, and then out the other end of that, you take the deck that now has cards from the other rune lords that you've put into the market, and then you fight that way. So it, it really ups the replayability of each playthrough and it also revives rune lords in future expansions so if you hadn't played the first rune lord from the first series in a very long time a new rune lord might come out that has new cards that you think would be great with that old rune lord and then suddenly you knock the dust off of that one and you get it back into the meta so that's kind of the that's kind of the nutshell well, man, I, I wish, John, that you had just, uh, you know, designed a couple more modes because it sounds like <laughs> there's barely any, you know, <laughs> gameplay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, John. That was a great uh, summary. Dustin, tell us about the Ghost Betwixt. So the Ghost Betwixt is a campaign-based horror-themed dungeon crawler. Um, it's it's AI-based, so you don't need a, a dungeon master. Um, you do play as all four family members. So you are you play as Joan the mom, uh, Bill, the dad, Maddox, the brother, and Avalyn, the sister, and they are going into this spooky house looking for their son slash brother, Richie, who's been kidnapped and taken into this spooky house, which uh, during Halloween doubles as a Halloween haunted house. Um, so there's obviously some surprises, some mystery going on uh, throughout the campaign. You're going to find out uh, what is going on. Um, why is the the Bennert family or the uh, the creepy family that own this property? Um, why did they kidnap Richie? What in the world is going on in this house? You'll find all that out. So you play as the four family members. Um, it's it's soloable. Obviously, it's cooperative. Uh, it's easily sellable. So I know that might scare a few people off. How in the world can you control four characters at the same time? I know some people, when they think a solo mode, they want to kind of do that lone wolf style for reasons. I haven't uh, entertained that just because the, the, 
play between the family members and their different talents that, you know, cooperate with one another. Um, there's definitely a lot of combo sort of um, strategies that occur. So that's why you play all four family members. But I assure uh, anybody listening, it's 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 quite simple. Um, but it, it is a, a, a dice chucker, but there's a lot of strategy involved. Um, the different weapons you find, and there's uh, hundreds of different weapons and dozens of different talents. And it was important to me that each of the weapons you find and each of the skills you learn, it's not just a simple kind of stat boost. Um, so it's a lot of kind of tactics on the board. So for example, like there's some weapons where you get a, a plus one damage if you are exactly diagonal to your target. So that might, you know, you might want to set your uh, family member up um, for a future turn. And, you know, you want to end your turn diagonally to a monster because then the next turn you can attack diagonally and get that that bonus. So there's kind of a lot of that sort of tactics going on. But yeah, so uh, super excited about it. It is, I'm sure we'll get back, uh, more into this, but uh, right now it's, it's, we're calling it chapter one. So it is. Uh, six story missions and three side missions make up chapter one of this overarching story. Um, and then chapter two will come later. But for this Kickstarter we're talking about today, it is solely focused on chapter one of the story. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get into all the thoughts behind that. So very cool. Thank you both. All right. So uh, Dustin, starting with you, uh, kind of a big thing. So you don't have to go into every little detail, but uh, you decided to start on Kickstarter. What kind of led up to that? How did you like do press for the game? How are you play testing? Like, how did you kind of prep before you actually put the game on the first time? Oh man, where do I start? It was such a, a an awesome um, is the best way I can describe it. Time in my life is very exciting. Um, just having this idea, just from starting from absolute scratch, you know, nothing on paper. And then one day just committing to it. I remember I was mowing the yard one, it was the summer of 2016. And, and I was like, you know what? And I started, I was in heavily into board games and dungeon crawlers. I was like, why not? Why not take a shot? Cause you know, I see all these Kickstarters blowing up and that was never the, that was never the goal to have a Kickstarter blow up the, the, the goal was always just to, you know, realize the dream. And I didn't care if it funded for a dollar uh, more than it needed to. That was just fine with me. And it still remains my goal to this day, just having the dream, you know, realized. So um, it really was, yeah, probably, I want to say at least two full years of um, prototyping, uh, testing, you know, just scraps of paper all over my living room and uh, using my kids' Shopkins as miniatures. <laughs> and uh, just it doesn't matter. I mean, any game designer knows it doesn't matter. What matters is what's under the hood of the game. So, um, yeah, just, just my goal was always every day just to at least do something on the game. I knew if I could just, you know, complete one small goal every single day, um, eventually we'd get there. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, and so why I chose Kickstarter, uh, I just... I had to, just like everybody else, I had to make that that decision. Um, do I want to self-publish or do I want to, um, you know, uh, present this to a publisher and try to try to sell the idea? And it's such a, I don't know, a personal 
story, I guess. And a lot of the directions that the story goes in and a lot of the decisions I made in the game, it does not need hundreds of weapons, right? Uh, it, it just doesn't. Um, so I I was afraid if I tried to to go with a publisher that they would want to trim it down, you know, if, if somebody was was ultimately interested. So I knew for me to realize this game and this idea all the way through, I was just going to have to do it myself. Obviously, Kickstarter was the most viable path to get there. So um, that's that's what I committed to. The, the biggest milestone was uh, getting that first um, official prototype done of, of Mission 1. And so I printed six of them, a U.S. a U.S. Uh, printer, and they printed six copies for me. And I figured if I could, uh, if the game was good, and I could send those out to uh, YouTubers that uh, focus on solo games, cooperative games, dungeon crawlers, I really tried to focus on that niche, on that genre. Um, then you know, surely there are uh, viewers out there that that might this might catch their attention. So of course, one stop co op shop and and uh, your boy Bear Diddler uh, checked it out. So um, yeah, I, I identified a you know a dozen or so YouTubers and reviewers, and uh, that was kind of my um, my strategy there. It's funny because uh, there's a lot of different elements of how to fund right, how to meet your goal. So marketing is obviously a big part of it, the campaign itself, uh, the page itself, all those things that we're going to talk about. Um, So I think the marketing for my game was good. I'm sure I could have done more, but I didn't want to necessarily go overboard. I didn't think I had to. So I thought that the the videos that were produced um, were were amazing. Um, So I'm super appreciative to everybody, including you, Mike, who checked it out. And um, yeah, so so that's kind of where I was. Got plenty of um, videos out there and then you know at some point you have to set a date and you're not you're not entirely sure um how it's going to perform you might go crazy high over your goal or you might not get there i just had no idea so i knew i just had to draw a line in the stand stand and and take a shot so that's that was the first kickstarter goal and there were a few reasons i i identified to why it ultimately didn't succeed yeah we'll get into those in just a minute but yeah thank you for walking us through that uh it's tough to know how much to advertise, when to launch, all that stuff. Yeah, and uh, John, how about you? I mean, I, I met you and, and first saw the game at uh, PAX U last year, so you were clearly doing uh, some of the convention circuits. Uh, what kind of stuff were you doing kind of in the lead up to when you wanted to kickstart the game? Uh, what's interesting about when I entered the Kickstarter culture was, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, I and mean, if you base it off of the success of the first campaign, then you would just, uh, you know, face value, say it's a bad thing, but it might actually be a good thing is that it was changing very rapidly in a very short period of time of a, the expectations of what backers are looking for from a prototype and from a publisher, just the general expectations of what a publisher can provide quality wise versus the social media marketing. So when I first jumped in, I was so fortunate to have several really big publishers um, just sort of talk to me at these conventions. I went to um, every convention that uh, was that I was able to book for the about the 18-month period. I was able to go to UKGE. I traveled overseas, go to Essen Spiel, had a booth there, and then had um, and then did basically all the PAX um, ones, which is where I was one of them. Great to be able to meet you. Uh, and then did all the Dice Towers. Um, you know, so I did a bunch of conventions. And at the time when I entered the scene, this was the number one advice was that you're going to meet 
and get your backers by getting letting them get their hands on it and letting them speak to you as a per, as a person behind the game because if backers and people at conventions can believe in your passion and they can see you in at multiple conventions it's going to root you in some sort of like stability it's going to it's going to build trust and then on the flip side, I would ask some of these publishers, well, how much are you spending in social media? Some of them were saying they barely do it at all, maybe $500 or $1,000 a year on ad spends total. They do a little a punch towards like the actual launch. And I was just getting these kinds of numbers. And I didn't know how to apply them directly to what I was doing. I just figured I'm going to ignore my gut because I don't know the space. And I'm just going to try and follow the known path. And uh, back to the initial thing that I said is I think I joined into the culture in a transitional period where I think it was more about social media marketing at the time and I shouldn't have done as much conventions. So um, that's one of the things that I think I would personally advise anybody getting into Kickstarter now is if you can do a convention, if it makes sense you know, geographically, it's priceless, the experience you get at a convention. But social media marketing and Facebook ads, Instagram posts, um, community outreach in groups, this really is where the, where the space is right now, I believe. And it's where the strength uh, of building trust exists, um, especially considering the pandemic. Uh, and we're not going to be able to have conventions. So for who knows how long. But yeah, so I think that's kind of the short answer there is I, I, I think I joined in in a, in a transitional period of how to do this effectively. Yeah, really good observation there. So I totally agree with you. And something else I'd add about social media marketing, if you want to call it that, is is not just not just ads and, and all, all the spend. And of course, that's important, but also just being, like you said, genuine. Um, like, like you talked about in conventions, being yourself and you can, you can apply that online too. There's, as, as we all know, there's so many different Facebook groups for every different niche of genre of board game and just being part of the community, I think is important. Just people who, you know, when you, for me, when I comment on a particular post about a dungeon crawler or something, you know, over time, I think people start to identify my name with the ghost betwixt. And I think, and of course you don't want to overdo it. There's kind of that fine line where you do not want to bombard, uh, you know, every dungeon crawler board game group or Facebook group with, you know, Hey, the ghost betwixt, blah, blah, blah. You want to participate. It's a lot of give and take. So, um, I, I found, I think I've found a lot of success there as well. A hundred percent. Couldn't agree with you more about that. All right. Yeah. Good advice. Uh, I totally agree with everything you just said. Uh, even like in trying to uh, promote our channels and stuff on Facebook and other social media. Yeah. It's just really important to be a member of a community and then be like, hey, by the way, here's some stuff I like, <laughs> you know, and, and let them find it. And you know, what's, what's, what's great about it, too, is is that we're really fortunate in the type of community that we have. Um, I can't necessarily speak to say, you know, the muscle car community. I'm just making something else <laughs> up, right? I can't really speak to that. I'm not in that scene. Um, I have stereotypes in my head that probably are not accurate if I were to actually dig and get into that space. But I can say from what I've learned over the last three and a half, four years of really being involved in the, in the board game community specifically, we have some of the funniest and brightest and intelligent people and if you just scour the internet for comments and groups and forums and things, it's so entertaining. Like the number of gifts and memes and just 
correlations between pop culture and stuff that can happen along your journey. It's like, we're really fortunate in that way. It's a very entertaining community that we have. So it's almost like once you commit to it, you realize how easy it actually is to be involved. And it's a, I found it to be a very positive community too, which is very refreshing because you guys might disagree, but it feels like when a new AAA video game comes out, people can't wait to jump on and talk about what's wrong with it. But I find the opposite is completely true in board games. Like people just, the new big games that come out, people just love them. And yeah, people will will point out, you know, the flaws of certain games, but they really highlight people, you know, really enjoy what's great about each game. I just, I don't know why. I just feel like the the board game industry and, and online and social media, it's just, it's a positive experience and a positive community. Well, speaking of positive experiences and positive community, let's get to uh, the part of the story that might not be entirely positive. Uh, John, you can start. Uh, can you talk about the launch of your Kickstarter, uh, how it went at first, and you know how you started to maybe feel like things weren't going the way you had hoped in comments or funding or what have you? Uh, just to extrapolate on kind of what I, I had mentioned a little bit before, I'm going to take that a step farther. And I realized at the one of the things that uh, this time around, I'm I'm more excited for the process this time around because when I clicked that launch button the first time, um, it doesn't matter how many you know Stegmeier things you read online or how, you know Brandon Rollins or any of the other people that give you advice. No matter how much how much things you educate yourself on about how a Kickstarter works. None of it actually makes sense until you hit that button and you start to see exactly the timing of when things happen, the priority, the prioritizing the different, you know, um, the different steps in making a Kickstarter a reality. And this time around, I kind of feel safer because now I know that when you hit that button, the, the, the ceiling doesn't just collapse on you. It's not like you hit the button and then all of a sudden it's like you're in this hurricane of like craziness. It's actually this kind of lull where you can, you can sort of, even in our beginning hours where we were getting a lot of backers early, um, it's fun to field the comments. You know, it's like you, you, they come in and you, you're sending your updates and you're talking to people. And, and it's a very, you know, if they've already backed it, then it's a very positive experience because they're excited. And I feel like I, I, the first time around, had I known that it was going to be kind of that enjoyable, I wouldn't have stressed so much. I wouldn't have worried about it before it happened. And I could have maybe focused more. um, And I could have just been a little bit more relaxed because when you put so much time, and I think any designer can, can attest to this, when you put so much time, money, uh, passion, hopes into a project, it's impossible for you to detach your emotions from the success. It's just impossible. There's just no way. I don't think it's possible that you can do it. I think this might be why a lot of the most successful CEOs out there don't get involved in a lot of the projects they invest in. I think because it's, it's maybe sort of easier to manage multiple projects that way. But when you're a designer going to Kickstarter, it's all in. This time around, I'm hoping that I can just, my expectations are going to be a little bit more where they need to be. And I can just focus more on, on uh, what needs to be done. That was, that was a big, big learning curve for me. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Just kind of your, your mental kind of state and your expectations going in. Now, how about you, Dustin? Uh, the first time around, you, you've had your second campaign, but the first time around, 
Uh, when did you kind of get a sense that things weren't going as you had hoped? Like what, what kind of happened there? So I'm trying to remember. It was, it was, uh, two Julys ago. So July of 2019, I believe is when we, I think when we launched and I happened to be in Seattle. So I live in Kansas city and I was in Seattle at the time for a convention for work and, um, the Kickstarter campaign actually went live while I was in the middle of this big conference with thousands of people. So I'm in the back row, not paying any attention to the conference, as you might imagine, and just focusing on this live Kickstarter page, like John just said, all your hopes and dreams and passion and money and time has been just, you know, all funneled into this one project and and it's it's all here and it's all live and it's all public and then uh you know you're seeing that you're seeing your uh your your backers rise and it's really exciting at first and so i'm just sitting there and things are looking real good and i forget i think that first day um i want to say we hit like eight or eight or nine thousand so probably like Oh, about a quarter of the way to our goal that day. Really exciting. And things are looking very positive. And, you know, some of my friends in the industry are telling me, man, you're, you're so good. It's, it's, it's going to work out. And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, so I was kind of bracing myself. And it was a couple of days later where, you know, it pretty much got stuck in the mud. You, you know, as a Kickstarter uh, launcher, when when uh, things are starting to plateau a little bit and there's not much you can do. So uh, I did reach that point in that first Kickstarter. And it's not a fun place to be, but, you know, like John said, you have to, you know, kind of detach a little bit, try to detach the emotions. It, it does suck at first, but you can run as many campaigns as you want, right? So it's not like uh, an all or nothing sort of uh, endeavor. You can always try again. So um, it's just a matter of recalibrating, figuring out what went well, um, what could you do better, and listening to the to the backers, um, listening to the people who were on the fence and ultimately did not uh, choose to back your project. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. So I, I got home from that that um, conference came back home, talked to my, uh, my, my graphic designer, who's become a good friend of mine, Cole. And we just talked about what are the next steps? So what we decided, and I'm sure this will be another question, but um, let's just, uh, let, let's, let's bring the scope down just, just a touch and let's, let's try again. Yeah. And I guess, uh, yeah, you, you did kind of bring up two things there. I'm curious about uh, Dustin for you first, man, John, I want to hear from you too. What was, if, if some things stick out, like what was the prevailing feedback from people who weren't so sure, who were backing, or uh, people who didn't back on like the forums? Uh, what what kind of stuff were they latching on to, uh, Dustin? Sure. The, so the main the main quote unquote complaint um, was uh, some people found the project to be a little too expensive for what you got, um, especially since it's all cardboard. There's no minis in it. Um, so they're like, you know, why, why is this so much? Um, so, so that was, uh, that was where my, I put my bullseye. How can we bring the price down on this thing and in turn bring down the overall goal? So that was the, by far the biggest focus, um, of Kickstarter number two. And that's what I guess, uh, led to that big decision to split the, the campaign as it were in the sort of half, Absolutely right? right. So the story of the ghost betwixt is a, it's quite a, a, a big overarching story where you, and 
you investigate and adventure in all sorts of different environments in this, you know, creepy property in the Midwest uh, during uh, Halloween time, which we're approaching here soon. We discussed, okay, do we have to tell the whole story in this in this game? You know, can we can we pull it back a little bit and maybe just focus on the first half of the story? And by doing that, you know, less um, less map tiles, therefore less art, therefore a lower goal. You know, I don't I don't have as big of an art budget, so the, you know, a lot of different kind of uh, financial factors just spurred off that one decision that ultimately was you know, the, the best decision we ever made, uh, in this, in this, uh, project. And John, how about you? Uh, what were some of the like biggest kind of points of feedback that came out of it and how have you been adjusting as you're prepping for your new, hopefully, uh, October relaunch? Uh, sure. It was two primary things that we thought needed to be addressed, um, earnestly. Uh, the first one was exactly what Dustin said was funding goal. Um, over the conventions that we did that we had ni- over 900 surveys and it was, it was just overwhelming how many people at that had filled out our very quick survey at our booths, um, w- said that they preferred an, an ethical campaign. And what an ethical campaign meant to us, um, was, is that if we reach our minimum, our, our, um, our funding goal, that we will not cancel. That's the first thing. And then the second thing was we knew that we needed to pay a licensing fee to our author. So that is not something that we obviously wanted to burden the backers with. That's just something that was part of our business plan behind the scenes. And we had to work that into our funding goal. Uh, so all of that equaled a larger funding goal than a starting publisher should be asking for in previous campaigns that were on Kickstarter. So when we launched at 100,000, asking for 100,000, our game certainly had a lot of components and justified a $70 price tag or an $80 price tag as a game. But the 100,000 just seems so unreachable, I think, I feel, uh, to backers. And we heard that through comments uh, that I don't think we have much of a choice but to address it. Now what we're doing is... Because it's still important to us that we we reach our funding goal and not cancel, um, the only thing that we could now do is approach the author and ask if we can somehow get the, the, the licensing fee to be maybe paid at a later time. And David Farland is such an absolute wonderful person to work with, and he believes in this game, and he sees how much... I've put into this for the last three years or more, almost four years, and he's uh, he's willing to work with us the best way that we can. So we're we're able to knock a really big chunk off of that um, off of that funding goal. So uh, what Dustin said is, I feel absolutely right. I think I think the funding goal is a very important number that needs to be like properly assessed before you go to Kickstarter. Um, so that's the first thing. The the second thing was the optics of the game. Uh, I feel that the game looks, well, it did, it looked more complicated than it actually was. And because all of our videos and playthroughs were full experiences, like there was no bite-sized version of our game that you can experience other than the in-house videos that we were making, which were getting the least views, but the ones that were getting the most views through Geek and Sundry and Dice Tower, these were full-on three four player experiences that had all the pieces out on the table and it was just like it it was a lot to take in 
Um, and even though you could very easily see that the players at the table were not having trouble playing the game, that's not what you're thinking when you see the video for the first time. So you might just turn it off in a few seconds, like this game looks crazy. So we addressed how we do bookkeeping in the game. We addressed component count and we addressed just general table real estate. So uh, between the funding goal and the game optics, I think we're in a much better place. And all of our changes to our game were made off of player feedback, uh, comment feedback from the community. And none of the changes actually changed the initial game we that we wanted to provide. So the game is identical, uh, even if we changed some mechanics to make the optics better. Yeah, and that's something that uh, just in, in my little experience with both of you, I've, I've been very impressed with, is that you both kind of took your your pause from Kickstarter campaigning to not just work on like, you know, advertising more and that kind of stuff, but even like iterating things in a way that could improve based on feedback. So uh, like J John, you know, I, I played uh, with you on Tabletop Simulator recently, the uh, newer iteration of the solo co-op adventure mode. And I, I found it a drastic improvement. Not that it was bad before, but I think, uh, it's like really, really cool now. It plays ultra fast, does feel more streamlined and like has really nice mission design. And then uh, Dustin, I, I haven't played it since then, but I know you had talked a lot about uh, kind of streamlining uh, the missions a little bit so that uh, the like the pacing would be improved. So I just want to say like one, one designer to others, I, I, I thank you all for doing that. I think it's really a great uh, step to take for your games. Well, well, thank you, Michael. And I remember specifically having a conversation with you about um, there was a lot of missing because you do have to roll dice to hit the monster. Um, it's not an automatic hit every time. And there was too much of that. And I'm kind of a... Uh, I've always loved games that are really difficult. They're kind of punishing and that's just not always, it's not always fun. So I had to get over that hurdle and I had to make it, it's okay to dominate, you know, it's okay for these, it's okay for these, these, these characters to, you know, to, to go through this house and, and beat up these monsters and, and, you know, be larger than life characters based on your videos and, and some other playthroughs that I watched, um, kind of bracing myself and, and just not loving what I was seeing. Um, there was some, some, some fairly drastic, but easy to implement changes just by a couple little changes to the dice. And then there were just, there were a few too many monsters in mission one. So I just cut out a few of those and it brought the gameplay um, from, you know, probably three hours to complete mission one down to two, which is a lot easier uh, to, to, to consume in a night. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's really important too, is to, to look at not just the, the finances and the components and all the adult stuff that we're talking about, but also, you know, take that time to really look critically at your game and, hey, this is a great opportunity for you to, again, detach the emotions, look at it critically and see, okay, let's try to improve this thing. Let's try to streamline it and just make it, um, you know, as, as interesting and uh, compelling to people as possible. See, so that's a, that's a warning to all the designers out there who want to send me your Kickstarter game. I'm going to whine at you and, and just complain about your design. <laughs> I, love, I love what you said so much uh, um, about the being critical and stuff because uh, it, and this is 
purely just my take on on design. But uh, give a, if you don't mind, I'll give a quick example of one of the changes um, in the game that I think kind of applies to all of the changes that we made. Is that there's sometimes a way of you have to critically look at what it is you're trying to do, and what's so great about Kickstarter is if if I were to let's say let's say I was just going to go to like straight to market with my game, I don't get a I don't get a chance to make these changes. So what's great about Kickstarter and failing at it is that you get to go back and really like hash out. It's almost like this really great opportunity that I feel like Kickstarter offers exclusively to designers. And so when you look at it critically, you go, well, what is it that I'm trying to do here? So in our game specifically, we wanted to make the D20 system like we wanted to to remove the the D20 ruining the night element of the d20 system and where the where if you're just rolling badly it, it it's just the night's just ruined like and we wanted to kind of alleviate that by just saying basically you're always going to hit it's just how much cool stuff is going to happen based off of what you roll and then we started to realize that like well if you're doing the d20 system you're starting to have to do a lot of bookkeeping you're adding to your attack you're adding to your defense and then we started going well if you're adding to your attack and adding to your defense they're canceling each other out most times. So what's the point of all this bookkeeping? It's like, why not just say, all right, well, what's the math we're looking at here? So our system was, if you roll a 15, you do an advanced effect. And if you roll an 18 or better, you do a critical effect and the advanced effect. Mathematically, you can do that basically the same with a D6. So it's like one, one face is going to have, or two faces will have the advanced and only one face will have the critical mathematically it's essentially the same but what you get to do now is you get to just go ahead and put the wounds that's dealt on every face and you can scale up the dice by having different tiered dice and it's the exact same system but there's not all this bookkeeping between adding to your attack and then adding to your defense and then how much wounds am i dealing okay well i gotta look at all my items just read the dice it's the exact same system that we had before but we were able to critically step back and go, how many problems can we solve by making one big change? And that took about, a, honestly, it took about a month of real serious grind to just come to this system to keep the previous system alive, um, but just remove a ton of bookkeeping. That's just one example of how we did yeah, it. And I think, again, having played it, it's, it's a great improvement in like again the speed of the game you know if nothing else it just keeps the game flowing and keeps your mind focused on the fun part so yeah nice job with that so uh dustin you you, you know we're kind of talking about the uh the harsh uh side of kickstarter Let, let's get to the success uh, tell us about the second campaign uh what felt different about it how it went how it was all received and how you kind of felt after it was all done and over with yeah so honestly the the first Kickstarter failing was, I would never recommend going through it, but it, for our situation, it was kind of a blessing in disguise for the for, for some of the reasons we just mentioned. Um, one of those reasons was it, it allowed um, it allowed me to kind of really focus in on that portion of the story. So I want to make clear that when we talk about splitting this game into two chapters, that doesn't mean like we split the game and the game itself in half. It's just really the story itself. Um, so the game was always going to be about 12, 10 to 12 missions, but 
you know, for chapter one, we decided to let that part of the story breathe a little bit and create some more missions within that portion of the story. Um, so kind of reusing some of the map tiles and there's, um, 16 double-sided map tiles. So there's a lot of environments that you're going to be, um, you know, adventuring through. Uh, but for example, um, you know, there was a, there's a part in the story after mission three, where in kind of the outro part of the story, it says, you know, the family goes from, you know, point A to point B. I was like, well, why not, why not just make a, a mission out of that part of the story? Why not? So that's just a way of kind of economically, um, you know, better using your components. Um, so, so what went better in that second Kickstarter was uh, we were able to lower uh, the price of the game by 20 bucks, which was a big deal. Um, so that, that core box was, in my opinion, very affordable. Um, another big uh, decision and benefit of the second Kickstarter was we did decide to do a deluxe edition um, with some com- some additional components that didn't change the gameplay. It's very important to me in this game that for somebody to buy that core box, you are still getting the entire game, all the characters, all the monsters, all the weapons, all the, the talents, everything. But how could we, you know, make more money just, just to hit that goal and that deluxe edition ultimately probably was what got us there um, because we had far more backers of that deluxe edition than we did even the core box which surprised me so in that deluxe edition we have kind of some fun little goodies like uh, a felt bag where you put the target tokens of each of the family members and that's how the monster ai decides who they're going to attack so instead of having a a pile of target tokens on your table which is still what i do it, it works just fine you just you have them flipped face down so you don't know which ones you're drawing um in the, in the deluxe edition, you will get a felt bag to draw from. So things like that. Um, dials are are added in the deluxe edition. Um, alternate monster art, and then each of those deluxe edition backers get their name in the game somewhere. Um, not just in the credits, we're actually drawing them into um, the art. Uh, I'm adding them into some of the story, um, some of the cards. So. Some of those backers, all those backers, I should say, they have no idea where their name is going to pop up. So that'll be fun for everybody to find. Let's see here. What else went well? Um, I would say also what was important was we did have some really great people that were, they really kind of understood the vision, I think. And and they were kind of, I'll call them advocates for us. So so they were, you know, hopping on Facebook boards and, and and other social media platforms and and promoting the game and you know sharing the kickstarter page and you know talking about what they liked about it because as john would probably agree you can only talk about your game yourself so much um until it starts to get a little <laughs> you know a little a little much at some point you want other people to be excited too so i think that's that's important <laughs> um so how that happens, it's kind of an organic thing. Um, I think if you if you make something of quality, which which I think John definitely has, I'm super excited for Rune Lords and I you know, I think the Ghost with Twix does as well. Um, you make something of quality, I think you're you're gonna you're gonna find some of those people who are equally as excited and want to see it fund because they want the game as well. So they're gonna help you out. Um, online and, 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 you know, promote it a little bit as well. And that, that right there is uh, probably the 
for me, the most important part of social media advertising, way more effective than an ad, in my opinion, having a real person, a real group of people that are advocating for your game. So um, I think all those. Oh, and then, of course, the uh, the funding goal. Um, so we were able to split the funding goal in half um, to a much more affordable place uh, because like I mentioned, when we, we split that story down, there's, um, you know, just, just a few less environments you're, you're traveling to in chapter one. So, you know, that art budget came down a little bit and the component, um, budget came down the shipping budget, like all, it all ties in. Um, so, so that was, a that decision made all the difference and allowed us to, like I said, the game was cheaper. The funding goal was less. And then, uh, you know, the deluxe edition helped with all that. So it was just a combination of a lot of, you know, really, really good ideas that we we thought long and hard about and they ultimately paid off for us. So, yeah, uh, hopefully, John, you'll be on the show again uh, in, a, you know, maybe three or four months having a similar success story about how all your decisions worked out just the way you hoped. <laughs> I'm just going to yeah, I'm just going to keep hitting Dustin up for advice. <laughs> That's all I got. You know as much as I do at this point. (laughs) I'm far from an expert. (laughs) So just to kind of close things out, and I really do appreciate you both being here tonight to uh, have this conversation. Um, This is clearly a a time, you know, you've been through many periods of great stress, I'm sure. So uh, some of our uh, people on uh, Discord and Slack wanted to know what were some of your sources of stress relief, like what kind of kept you going mentally, physically during uh, the the tougher times of this whole experience. Uh, John, how about you first? Uh, Well, coffee, (laughs) uh, for sure. Coffee was a was a massive factor in, in keeping me going, uh, and I would also say um, it, I, I think playing other games and backing other campaigns, um, always staying fresh on playing, which is another reason why it was so important to go to the conventions was because your booth is open for X amount of hours, and then after you close your booth down the real work starts. You go out and you enjoy everyone else's games and you just sit at tables until four in the morning. Uh, and then you go get three hours of sleep and get back to your booth in the morning. So, but that kind of rejuvenates why you're doing it. Uh, and I think, um, reminding yourself that games are fun by playing games and, and, uh, and that kind of, I think that's, that's really, really important. Um, so caffeine and games. Yeah, I agree. I was going to replace coffee with beer, lots of beer that always helps. And, uh, just, <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, just keeping the, the eye on the prize and remembering why, you know, why did I get into this, you know, in the first place? And, and it always was just to, just to make something fun, um, something I'd be proud of, something that, you know, my friends and family would enjoy and something that, you know, hopefully a lot of people out there would like to. So I, I really just got back to, um, you know, continuing to improve the game. Um, I knew it would eventually fund. Again, you can try as many times as you want. So I just kept investing in the game. And, and you know, like I said earlier, um, just every day doing something to improve the game, whether it's tightening something up, uh, making it a little more streamlined, um, thinking of a interesting little uh, dialogue back and forth between, you know, Joan and Bill or something, you know, so I, that always kept, that always still does to this day. It keeps me, keeps me motivated. And that is a stress reliever. I, I feel better at the end of every day when I do something. Um, so, you know, that, and, uh, just the normal stuff, just, just chilling out. Um, you know, 
enjoying the stuff you you uh, you like outside of games and not taking not taking it too seriously and and uh, just believing believing in your project believing that it'll, you'll you'll get there it'll fund all right great uh, words to end on there I think just believe and uh, one day it'll happen. Uh, both of you guys, I want to thank you so much for being on the show, uh, Dustin and John. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So uh, hopefully, uh, I, I think uh, John will be doing some videos of uh, the Rune Lords for the uh, relaunch. So hopefully you'll be seeing some stuff from us in October, uh, November, whenever we get the game uh, up there. And yeah, uh, Dustin, are, are we hoping maybe uh, Chapter 2 could go on Kickstarter in 2021? Is that a possibility, do you think? That is absolutely a possibility. Um, I haven't... I haven't really put much thought into the date it's definitely a possibility um i have uh like as you know um the the whole story has kind of been mapped out and i do have um a good portion of chapter two kind of finished so i already have a really good start there so it's very possible chapter two might hit kickstarter uh we'll just see how everything goes make sure chapter one is delivered fulfilled and everything's good there um i just really want to make sure chapter one you know a hundred percent of my energy is making sure this thing is perfect and chapter two is all set up and ready to go so yeah it's definitely a possibility but uh i will of course let you know all right gentlemen well best of luck to both of you in uh these games and of course all your endeavors because life is more than games uh sometimes (laughs) sometimes thank you you too and everything that you're doing man you're just thank you so much what you do for the community thank you all right and uh we'll see you at the next stop everybody thanks for listening and uh be safe and healthy bye bye Thanks for joining us for another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to join in our discussion, join us on Discord, where you can join us live through chats or play games with us. You can also support us at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week with another top five list. Yeah, and I should note that I was also an 80s kid playing a lot of games, although I had the uh, the Sega Master System and the Sega Genesis, so I was in the, the Fantasy Star series while y'all were playing uh, the Final Fantasies and everything. <laughs> Altered Beast. <laughs> oh, yeah, man, Altered Beast, all those games. Um, <laughs> Dude, the, the dungeons in Fantasy Star were brutal. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, unbeatable yes. games. <laughs> unbeatable. Oh, my gosh. Like, hey, there's a hidden door 15 blocks down on the left. Uh, if you miss it, then you're going to fall 25 floors and have to fight all these monsters again. That was a, that was uh, a rough to be one. Fair, it, has there ever been anything as cool as waiting for your episode of Nintendo Power to come out? Uh, like, is that, what has ever competed with that for me? Oh man, my uh, my friend had Final Fantasy. My friend had Final Fantasy, so I would go over to his house, and yes, I would like read his Nintendo Power issues, and it was the best. Well, I remember, (laughs) I remember getting the Final Fantasy uh, Nintendo Power Player Guide, like just out of I didn't even know it was coming, and it showed up in my mailbox, and I was like, "What is this?" And it's (laughs) the whole game, and I I can't remember if I had Final Fantasy before or after I got that, but I thought that was the coolest thing. It had unique art and everything. It was it was beautiful. And I think I still have it and I think it's worth a little something.